Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, I'm Brandon Young, legal counselor in training and proud Silmarillion heir, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. This episode you're about to hear is the second part of the group's discussion of the Baron and Luthien chapter, which I have nicknamed in honor of Professor Olson, Random Things Mando Said at a Party. It's a really great episode with very larger topics discussed, including a Luthien and Gollum parallel, power and prophecy in the Silmarillion and Baron and Luthien story in particular, a very interesting style time moment, and we also get into Huan and his loyalty to his master and when that becomes enough for Huan. I found it a very great episode, and I hope you will too. Good evening, everybody. I hope everybody's doing well tonight um, and ready for some excellent, efficient, and high-impact Baron and Luthien conversation. Um, but we're going to start with um, Baron and Finrod getting captured by Sauron, uh, with special attention paid to the epic duel between Finrod and Sauron. There's certainly a lot to say about that, and we'll certainly read it, the song. And uh, Though I think I still have to let you guys fight over who's going to do it. Um but uh anyway um then uh we're going to go through i want to get it, I, I would like to get at least through uh Kelgorm and Kurufin meeting Baron and Luthien in that chance encounter when they happen to run into each other in the wilderness and Huon finally deserts Kelgorm um so that's that's where I would at least like to get to maybe Baron's song that he sings about Luthien, um, if we're really lucky. Um, but then we'll for next week we will save Baron and Luthien and Angband and uh, the the stuff with the Silmaril and the hunting of the wolf, and of course the final things about their destiny and then our final conclusions about what Lay of Lathian really means. Um, anyway, okay, so are we ready? Okay. When we're when we're when we're already uh, up and going, okay. Well, then let's go straight to the conflict between Finrod and Sauron. Um, uh, Mike, I think you had called dibs on this first. Would you like to? Uh, would you like to read the poem? I would be honored. All right. He chanted a song of wizardry, of piercing, opening of treachery, revealing, uncovering, betraying. Then suddenly, Felagun there swaying, sang and answered a song of staying, resisting, battling against power, of secrets kept strength like a tower, and trust unbroken, freedom, escape, of changing and of shifting shape, of snares eluded, broken traps, the prison opening, the chain that snaps. Backwards and forwards swaying their song, reeling and foundering, as ever more strong the chanting swelled, Felagun fought, and all the magic and might he brought of Elvenes into his words. Softly, in the gloom, they heard the birds, singing afar, in Nargothrond, the sighing of the sea, beyond, beyond the western world, on sand, on sand of pearls in Elvenland. Then the gloom gathered, darkness growing, in Valinor the red blood flowing beneath, beside the sea, where the Noldor slew the foam riders, and stealing drew their white ships with their white sails from lamplit havens. The wind wails, the wolf howls, the ravens flee, the ice mutters in the mouths of the sea, the captives sad and angbound mourn, thunder rumbles, the fires burn, and Finrod fell before the throne. 
All right. Now, we might as well start with a little bit of style time here. Um, the thing I would draw attention to before we even get into discussing the content of the poem there, um, notice the transition into the poem. That is, you'll remember, I and mean, we talked about the title, The Lay of Lathian, but of course, remember, The Lay of Lathian is not just the title of this section of the Silmarillion, it's the title of the song, which this section of the Silmarillion is a summary of, right? Um, uh, you know, remember in the first paragraph, of their lives was made the lay of Lathian, released from bondage, which is the longest save one of the songs concerning the world of old. But here is the tale told in fewer words and without song. So we're 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 warned at the beginning that we're being given a prose uh, summary of the lay of Lathian. And now look at the transition into the poem here. Uh, for Felgun strove with Sauron in songs of power, and the power of the king was very great. But Sauron had the mastery, as is told in the Lay of Lathian. So, in other words, what we get here, this is not supposed to be, and here is a quotation of the so- of exactly the song that they sang. We're not getting a quotation of Finrod and Sauron here. What we're getting is a selection from the actual Lay of Lathian, right? You know, where he says, "Okay, I'm gonna, I can't do justice to this with the prose summary that I've been doing. I'm just gonna quote you a bit of the original Lay." So, and so this this kind of verse is, you know, according to the fictional frame that we're given of this story, what lies behind all of this. And so, so at this moment the narrator has chosen to suspend the prose summary and just give us some of the verse straight out. And remember, and remember, as I said before, The Lay of Lathian was one of the two poems that he was working on actually writing uh, in, full, in full poetic form. You can see as far as he got uh, in that in The Lays of Beleriand, Volume 3 uh, of the History of Middle-Earth. So um, anyway, I, just th- I think that that transition is really interesting, that you know, to keep in mind that in this section... Um, you know, we have that 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 transition into verse. Um, you know, that uh, this moment just just cannot possibly be described uh, in prose. So I think that that's uh, that's 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 an important thing to keep in mind. Now, thinking of the of the the song itself, what stuff do you notice here? I know that a couple of you have uh, have posted some some sort of thoughts and questions about the song. Who would like to go first? I'm jumping in. <laughs> That should totally be your your subtitle for tonight. Dave, I'm jumping in. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> what what were you what? <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just teasing you, Sorry. Dave. Sorry. <laughs> Proceed. <laughs> well, I figured the of course of course this uh, I failed miserably, but I figured it would be most if we're gonna answer your questions. I figure that uh, the most seamless way to do it is you ask a question and then someone buzzes in and answers, uh, as opposed to waiting for you to call on. So I jumped right. in. Sorry. Right. Right. No, um, no, that's good. This is giving to the end of the song, but I just thought it was interesting that, it, far as I can tell, ultimately the um, the final blow that uh, took out Finrod was the song about the was the part about the Noldor's treachery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's I I think that that. Um, that transition, the way that he does the transition in the verse here, is so moving. Um, from you know, in Valinor, the red blood flowing. Because you notice when when he when when Sauron, anyway, we're sort of to understand. And I, that's another. There's so many things I don't want to say. I'm like stumbling over my words here. Um, we don't get any kind of 
quotation cues. That is, we never get like a Finrod said, then Sauron said. Um, we don't get any clear, but you can tell who is doing what. Instead of instead of this clear, clearly delineated back and forth. Here are Finrod's words. Now here are Sauron's words. Instead, we get the whole song, the and and we can see the backwards and forwards swaying in it. Um, we can certainly see what Finrod goes with, and then we can see how Sauron uh, rebuts him. Um, and what's really cool about his bringing up of the kinslaying is it's not it's not just that that's kind of the winning blow, uh, which it does seem to be, but the way in which he is using that to counter what Finrod has just been doing, and all the magic and might he brought of Elveness into his words. Softly in the gloom they heard the birds singing afar in Nargothrond, the sighing of the sea beyond, beyond the western world on sand, on sand of pearls in Elvenland. I just love those. Those, those are my favorite lines um, from this entire uh, snippet of song here. Um, the sighing of the sea, uh, and the the Repetition of beyond, the sea beyond, beyond the Western world, that repetition of beyond seeming to point towards that, you know, sort of the the distance that Finrod knows it is away, you know, beyond, beyond. Um, Valinor is still over there. Yes, we're separated from it. Yes, we're over here in the darkness. But beyond, beyond, the sea is sighing on the, soar, on the shores of, of Elvenland. Um, and, you know, on, and then the immediate... Repetition again on sand, on sand of pearls and elven land. So we're not not just the sighing of the sea on sand, like on any old shore, on the sand of pearls and elven land. Um, so he's sort of reaching out in his song towards Valinor and the memory of Valinor and the beauty of of Valinor and that that uh, that image of the sea on the pearls. Remember that the pearls. Um, you may remember the the detail about the pearls from the description of Valinor. The per- there are pearls on the sand of Valinor because the Teleri strew them there when the Noldor gave them to them. So the 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 Teleri find these pearls from the sea and they give them to the Noldor who love them and who 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 make them into gems and 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 you know and and polish them and 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 make them. And then the Teleri just scatter them on the beach, and. Um, so I think that, that that's, in in a way, also an indirect recollection of the harmony between the Teleri and the Noldor back in the good days. And then, of course, we get the... the and, and that, of, of course, is exactly the place where Sauron now comes in and twists the knife. Darkness growing in Valinor, the red blood flowing beside the sea where the Noldor slew the foam riders. Uh, e- even by calling them the foam riders, right? to be taking specifically that 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 image of the sighing of the sea on the sand of pearls and now changing it to yet yeah, yeah yeah and do you remember the day when when the sighing of the you know when when the sea was washing up on the shore with the blood of the teleri in it yeah yeah that was that was, let's remember that shall we um and that's uh it's it's just so so i think it's 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 really cool to see sort of the whole context of that brandon go ahead okay good excellent um no, it just seems very interesting that um, that this is it's Sauron. I mean, it, it appears that he's um, has this command of language, and it just it's very interesting to me that this this kind of battle is fought with song, just like um, in the Isle of Lindale, where Melkor fought with his song, and perhaps this is um, Melkor's 
kind of um, winning of the second theme of the music. I don't know, but this is just—it's just very interesting how you have, um, you know, just this battle of of words and language and command over the logos, as it were, is kind of like a special feat of wizardry. And I just wonder how how one can make a distinction in wizardry through language, wiz- language and song that is good and, and bad in Tolkien. It seems very, it doesn't really, I don't see any hints of it. Like, what kind of poetry, what kind of, you know, what, what, was, what kind of song was Sauron singing? One imagines what kind of music he was singing, the, the, the mastery and wizardry of it. I just, you can't even imagine what kind of music it was, you know? You know what he referred to, but the type of music and songs he was singing, it just seems very, very in just sparks my imagination and just like i don't know it just seems like you can see this all over the place in Tolkien. yeah no i agree how brilliant would uh would a really uh a really thoughtful musical score of this song be um i i agree it does really spark the imagination what would sauron's song sound like uh, i mean you could model it after what we're told of the song of melkor um in the Ainulindale, you know, the the sort of the, the the brash unison, you know, like many trumpets braying on one note. But at the same time, you get a sense of 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 kind of greater subtlety to what Sauron is doing, because what he's doing is taking the music of Finrod and perverting it and twisting it, or, or and and well, but rather more even than that, showing Finrod. Uh, <laughs> Basically, the Noldor have twisted their own music, and that's that's the knife that he's turning. He's not introducing anything new. Um, but uh, but yeah, and I I think certainly you're right to to recall the Ainulindale and to think about the power of words and the power just of song as well. This is one of the places where I always go to when people want to talk about magic in Tolkien and magic in Tolkien's world. This song to me is one of the clearest illustrations of how magic works, and especially the link between magic and song. I, remember that singing is how the world was made. I mean, that's, that's you know, the song of the Ainur is this sort of the structure of all of creation. So, you know, when they sing it, it happens. And, and you see the, the whole theme of their song from the beginning, you know, in, uh, in our discussion so far, we've sort of skipped over the, the first stanza uh, of the verse here. Um, and in that first stanza, you know, we have what Finrod is talking about is freedom and escape and what Sauron is talking about is in, is uh, is uncovering, betraying, uh, and then ultimately enslavement and 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 imprisonment, and uh, so I think that and, and basically that's one of those two things is going to happen. Like one of their songs is going to be realized. Is you know reality shall follow in the path of the song that is being sung, and that's how magic works. That's how songs work. Um, so yeah, I actually I had a I had a, a student um, uh, at Washington College in my Tolkien class last semester who wrote a really interesting paper wherein she she was comparing and contrasting this song, the Finrod and Sauron duel, and the right. confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman. Uh, at the Tower of Orthanc, right, um, yes. and the power of words. Yeah. It, it, it was a really smart paper. Uh, uh, shout out to Marta Wessenberg, who wrote a brilliant paper on this subject. And um, and and again, there it was. It was. It was. You know, where, where you can see both of them attempting to form reality around their words. Um, one of the neat points that she made is, you know, when 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 Gandalf. Uh, wins in his conflict with Saruman, um, the moment of victory is not 
even uh, basically Gandalf doesn't even say anything in the imperative mood. He just says something in the indicative mood. Saruman, your staff is broken, and it breaks, right? Um, and you know that his words, in fact have the power in that moment to make re- reality follow them and that's again that's what that's what power is that's what the that's what the magic is there um and that's exactly what both Sauron and Finrod are trying to do in their different ways uh and in their different um and in their different uh uh, uh with with their different intentions um uh, good uh, Joe you wanted to to pitch in here too well one thing uh just I thought it was just, it's like heartbreaking because, you know, you see Good coming so close to winning. Like, he's doing awesome, and then it just kind of goes downhill. And uh, you were talking about the music earlier, and uh, I thought this was interesting because you said it kind of, Saul really gets his strongest thing here from uh, from something that, uh, that the Noldor did, even though it was something bad. He still gained that from them. And uh, yes. I thought that really related back to what uh, Eru said earlier on in the beginning. And then uh, just like, I mean, just... The power that you see here of just even an elf compared to a a Maiar, or, you know, I'll say an Ainur, because I know that distinction is vague, kind of, but, uh, just like, I mean, it's just amazing what he does, and then, uh, I mean, it's just, like, the power of good, it reminds me of, like, you know, the sun scaring the crap out of Morgoth, I mean, it's just amazing what it can do, but there's just the curse of the Noldor hanging on to everything, and it's just causing everything to just go downhill. I just thought it was intriguing how that all kind of tied together. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I would really strongly agree with both of those points. I mean, I think that this is, um, you know, Finrod almost wins straight up. Now, of course, he's not trying to conquer Sauron. The song that he's singing is a song of escape, of changing and of shifting shape. He's trying to get away. He's not trying to, to, like, cast Sauron down. We'll see that later on. (laughs) But, um, uh, but yes, he almost, he almost beats him straight up. Um, and that is important to remember, not only, um, you know, to keep in mind when we're, uh, when we encounter Sauron in the Lord of the Rings, but also just to see, as you say, we can see, especially when it's good versus evil, you can see these good characters, these good, uh, you know, these great elven characters who are acting for good do in fact show the capability to, 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 to have a real effect. This is not, this is not a no-brainer. And, you know, I would even, in a sense here, gesture back to the duel between Fingolfin and Morgoth. Um, you know, I, Fingolfin, yes, he was biting off a little more than, than he could chew there. That wasn't, he wasn't going to win that battle, but, you know, he, he, it's not even that he came close exactly, but that was a stiffer fight than one might think. This was not like now Morgoth comes out and squashes Fingolfin like a bug. He doesn't. Um, Fingolfin puts up a really good fight, much better than one might expect. And I love the lines, um, which we didn't talk about too much, about how the, the orcs don't boast of that battle. Nobody really wants to talk about it. Uh, the bad guys are kind of ashamed of like how much effort it took Morgoth to take out Fingolfin, and the elves are you know, mourn it too deeply. Um, but so, I mean, even, even with that, and that's as lopsided as it gets elf versus most powerful of all of the Valar. Um, but even there, it was, um, it was more close to equal than, than really could have been expected. And so here, when again, it still seems much obviously less imbalanced, but still imbalanced, it turns out to be really quite close. Um, and I, I do think that we do we do need to keep that in mind. Joe, go ahead. I was going to say this kind of ties back into what uh, um, Almo said to uh, 
Turgon about, you know, uh, hope comes from the West. Like, I mean, it's like they always come so close, but they just can't do it. And it doesn't happen until later on when you see some help comes. And it's just, if they would have had some help or had some support, you know, I mean, it's like it could have happened. I just thought, I just made that connection in my head there to where you can really see that acting yeah. and uh, following through in different events of the story. Yeah, yeah, and both the moment in the song which where Finrod seems to be coming closest to winning um, and, of course, the place where uh, ultimately things turn against him is when he is appealing to the West beyond beyond. And remember, way back a, a bunch of weeks ago, we were talking about Finrod. Remember, Finrod and Turgon as being the two of the captains of the Noldor who are most westward facing, who are most westward focused, both in their memories of Valinor uh, and apparently in their respect with, and even to some extent, continuing relationship with the Valor, at least with Olmo. Um, so with Finrod, we shouldn't be surprised to see him doing that. But, uh, um, but, but yeah, I mean, their hope does lie, does lie beyond the sea. And certainly, as you say, it, it, it definitely is. I didn't get to the second point that you had made before, but yes, it's, it's definitely, um, the curse of the Noldor that's coming back. It's definitely the kinslaying, as I always say in my Tolkien class. You can see it in this moment. You know, the kinslaying. It's it's like Noldor kryptonite. I mean, they can't. As soon as you know, as soon as Sauron goes there, it's over. And again, not because Sauron is so much more powerful, but because Finrod is weak there. Because he um, he himself has undermined the 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 foothold that he has to. Uh, to stand on there, um, and his own position, his strongest position, um, can be un- can be undermined by Sauron as he does. Um, of course, notice the notice the 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 theme of the song, both at beginning and end. Um, this is both this is a song about about bondage and imprisonment and release from bondage. Um, and you'll so you know you you know uh, Finrod is singing his song at the beginning you know freedom escape broken traps the prison opening escape from bondage right um, and then in the end after Sauron brings up the kin slaying um, the wind wails the wolf howls the ravens flee the ice mutters in the mouths of the sea again I love how these images come through um, sort of in correspondence to the to those you know visual and audio and audio images that uh, that that Finrod brings up about the 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 sea sighing on the shores of elven land and now we get the ice muttering in the mouths of the sea recalling of course the hell caraxa that finrod and fingolfin and everybody else had to go across because of the betrayal of feanor so you know he, the, there's it's potentially um also a subtle reminder not only of the kinslaying but of that second betrayal among the noldor at that time the captive sad and angband mourn um, so again, we get this final reference to the prisoners in Angband um, who are not being released from bondage, um, and that's that's where we end, at least for now. Um, let's see, Dave, go ahead. Um, we were discussing in the chat. Um, <clears throat> I sort of compared this to. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. I compared this to a courtroom drama in that Finrod sort of, like using the, the, the TV courtroom lingo, he opened the door to Sauron 
by singing a Valinor um, uh, in saying like, you know, hey, you know, let's let's sing about Valinor and all the wonderful things there. And then Sauron says, well, let's also talk about the horrible things that happened there. And, and in a way, you know, Finrod sort of brought up the topic and then Sauron seized upon it. But that was sort of unavoidable because, um, <clears throat> as we've discussed in earlier chapters, the Noldor's greatest hope lies in the West. And that, the, so, um, as Joe was pointing out in the chat, that this was his best shot, that, that, that the only chance he really had to win was to sing of Valinor because that, that is their hope, that is their great hope. Their one chance of winning and coming out of this on top is to, to is sort of lies in the West. But unfortunately, that's also their Achilles heel or their kryptonite. And so I think he was sort of doomed to, he really, even though it looks close, it looks like, oh, he almost won, he never really stood a chance because it, his, his argument was flawed from the beginning uh, yeah. because of what the Noldor did. Yeah, and I think that that's especially when we're talking about Finrod, you know, Finrod, who's clearly one of the good guys. Um, and remember, also one of the people of Finarfin, and so therefore, personally, not he wasn't there at the Kinslaying. The, the people of Finarfin were the ones furthest in the back. Some of the people of Fingolfin were there, but not the people of Finarfin. Um, so he's not even personally culpable. Um, he didn't kill any Teleri, um, but... Um, but but yeah, I, so I I think especially with him, this is we can see the real tragedy of it, um, the way in which through their rebellion they have cut themselves off from their only possible source of relief, and this is in an it, this is in a sense the conflict between Finrod and Sauron is like a little nutshell version of the entire war against Morgoth. The only way that the Noldor can possibly hope to win the war is with the help of the Valar, from whom they've closed themselves off by their own choice in departing, and then through their series of really bad choices as they were departing. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this is really where we... I think this is really where we can, where we get emphasized the tragedy of it. Because, you know, with many other times, certainly with Feanor, certainly with the sons of Feanor, and even at some other moments, we can see you know, the, 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 the Noldor in question, whoever, you know, happens to be in the story at that point, is clearly also themselves making bad choices. We can see, okay, this is the curse of the Noldor, but, but yet we can also see, all right, you know, this person is really sort of responsible for their decisions all along. And this is one of the moments where we can see genuine tragedy you know someone who is really trying to do the right thing but he can't do the, he can't succeed at the right thing and when he tries to do the right thing uh, the ground is ripped right from under him because you know this 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 weapon which is the only good weapon that he has to use um, has really been taken out of his hand so um, you know he is in a sense trapped here and this is of course the problem he's thinking of escape um and uh, broken traps, but that, uh, but that, that doesn't work. Good. A any other thoughts about uh, um, any other thoughts about the 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 song here? <laughs> One other kind of funny thing about the interface here is I have to kind of calibrate my pause after I ask a question. Uh, it's different from the one that I have in class because there's a lag. Um, in uh, often it seems to be a few second lag between when I say something and when you guys actually hear the thing that I say. So I want to make sure to both give you a chance to actually hear my words and then have a chance to respond before I just blithely go ahead and move on and assume that you don't have anything to say. So anyway, I'm trying to get the hang of that too. Um, 
Well, now, apart from this, we've we've been focusing really here just um, we've been yeah. So we've been talking here just just about that. Well, we'll come back to them in prison. Um, that is their actual time in prison uh, when we get to their when we get to their uh, their deliverance by Luthien and Huan. Um, so let's move on to uh, Section 7, Luthien to the rescue. Um, so this, so, you know, meanwhile, back in Doriath, Luthien suddenly gets a very uncomfortable feel- feeling. Um, thoughts about, thoughts about Luthien's, Luthien's response. Um, so yeah, the, the things included here, uh, her response, her being imprisoned by... Uh, by her dad, and then we've got Dairon being a fink again, and then we've got the 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 Rapunzel moment, and then ultimately her being taken in uh, by Kelgorm and Kurufen. Um, general thoughts? We get, of course, also the introduction of Huon in this section. Um, what do you make of? What is your response first to Thingol's imprisonment of Luthien? Laura, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't going to talk about that, but. Uh... It's uh, it's ridiculous, really. I mean, uh, it it just shows uh, how he really has kind of gone over the top. I mean, he's acting just like the the dark elf whose name I can never remember. Ao, yes, yes. Um, by uh, by imprisoning her, and uh, you know, he doesn't give her enough credit as as the daughter of Melian. She's you know, she's obviously going to get away from something as uh, simple as a, a treehouse. So I, I really like the way <clears throat> Luthien took uh, took matters into her own hand and engineered her own escape. And, uh, you know, I think she's really the, uh, the most, uh, or one of the most well-rounded female characters in all of Tolkien. Uh, maybe Eowyn is, or Eowyn is the only... Uh, the only one who's who's more well-rounded, and she's uh, she really shows uh, her her initiative. You know, she's not the passive female in this uh, in in her engineering her own escape. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, and um, she it's and it 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 just shows you again not only that he's really gone over the top in um sort of now just being cruel to his daughter in this way um but even just foolish as you say like you, you think that Luthien's not going to like that that's going to hold <laughs> Luthien that she's not going to be able to get out um it, it's like he i don't know it's 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 sort of it's sort of strange in that way, and I certainly agree. Uh, Luthien is a really remarkable character. I love the comment one of my uh, one of my students made the last time I taught my Tolkien class about this. When, when we got to the day on which we we only have one day in which we talk about Baron and Luthien for about half an hour, but um, <laughs> when when I was coming into class that day, um, Chantel says I can forgive Tolkien. You know the absence of female characters everywhere else. You know I, I have Luthien and I'm content. <laughs> That's like enough female character. You know the the quality of that one female character makes up for 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 their absence in so many other places. Um, but uh, anyway, I, one thing that strikes me about the imprisonment of Luthien here. When we were looking at the conflict between Baron and Thingol last time, we were looking at some of the ways in which Baron's boast and his oath 
uh, sounds kind of creepily like Feanor, and he's sounding all possessive, and he seems to be objectifying Luthien and just laying claim to her as if she were a thing, and claiming it unto himself like Feanor, or even like like Morgoth. Um, and you know, so we we're talking about sort of the 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 kind of uncomfort of that moment. But I think in talking about that, we were slightly overshadowing Thingol's own response, um, and the way in which I think you know there are two things that I always am reminded of when I when I think about Thingol in that scene. And one is Feanor, again, that he is like um he he is that Thingol in this moment is like Feanor coveting the Silmarils. Um you know, Luthien is like his Silmaril. Um she's his daughter. She's not like the pro, you know, she's not the product of his craftsmanship in the same way. So but 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 nevertheless she is the one that he she is the thing that he values most and that he feels a kind of you know proprietary uh you know has a kind of a proprietary relationship with and you know to some extent this like i'm going to put luthien up in the tree is is almost i mean this there are also i think some similarities between this and when uh when feanor decides he's going to hide the silmarils away and not show them to anybody else um and the other thing of course that i'm reminded of is the dream that almost sends to turgon saying love not too well the works of your own hands um and again it's not that luthien is exactly the work of thingol's own hands she's not a she's not a subcreation of his um but i mean she's his daughter and he loves her and he cherishes her and he values her um but he is loving her with a greedy love here um and in the force of his reaction against baron as we said last time it's understandable in some ways but um but still i think that uh th- that here again we can see his response um being uh being really pretty questionable and clearly as you say laura with the parallel to to Hale, uh there's a pretty low success rate uh for men in tolkien's works who try to restrict uh the actions of their wives sisters or daughters um if you try to confine them or forbid them to go places or do things or something that doesn't really seem to work out very well um don't forbid them to marry anybody. Don't forbid them to go visit anybody. Don't forbid them to ride with the host into battle. Um, they always seem to do what they want to do anyway. Um, that's really uh, a pretty, a pretty stable theme. It's it seems with whether it's Luthien or Eowyn or uh, Aravel or Haleth or whoever it is. Um, uh, Elizabeth, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's interesting just looking at the family dynamics of this whole situation and. Uh, Clearly what Fingal did was a pretty egregious act, uh, imprisoning his own daughter. I find it interesting that um, Melian has nothing to say to this and that she doesn't act on uh, Luthien's behalf or really um, have anything to, you know, contribute or speak um, or object at all to this. Just in terms of how uh, Tolkien treats women, I think it's interesting that he doesn't have the mother standing up for the daughter. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. But and I think there my suspicion of how we read that or my suspicion of how we should read that is not that um is not necessarily that Melian isn't standing up for Luthien, but to see this as sort of another step 
in what we were looking at last time as the beginning of a split, or, well, split is a little strong, but divide between Thingo and Melian. We were talking last time about how dumb he seems to be in not turning to her and not asking her for advice. Later on in the chapter, at the bottom of page 183, we will see explicitly this divide. Um, and this is when, after the, this is, you know, later on, then we'll actually get into discussing today, but just to glance ahead at it, um, after the whole Angman thing is over, and we kind of go back, you know, we, we have our second Meanwhile in Doriath moment, um, at the very bottom of 183, in that time, Thingol turned to Melian, but now she withheld her counsel from him, saying that the doom he, that he had devised must work to its appointed end, and that he must now wait upon time. Um, now, she won't tell him. She won't, it's not she won't talk to him at all, um, but he, he did not seek her counsel before, and did a foolish and dumb thing um, without her advice, and now he is asking her advice, and she refuses to give it. And I think that we can see her lack of speaking up at that moment as really sort of the first... Um, the first instance of this, I, I, I gotta think that Melian is, you know, has a pretty good idea that this whole, hey, yeah, let's lock her up in a tree. Um, notice, just like the wood elves do to Gollum later on, uh, I bet you weren't, uh, I, I bet you weren't thinking of a Luthian Gollum parallel, uh, but anyway, um, I bet she's, you know, I, I bet Melian would guess that this let's lock Luthian up in a tree thing is not gonna work out, but, um, but she doesn't seem to say anything there. So I think there we can see the beginnings of Melian saying, okay, you know, what you have set in motion from the moment when she says that speech we looked at last time, that, oh, king speech, you have devised cunning counsel, um, you know, where she say, you've really put your foot in it. You know, now Doriath is caught up in a, in, in, in a wider destiny. Now, now you have set into, have put into play, a chain of events outside of your control, which is in the end going to result in the fall of Doriath. And she sees that and she can't stop that now, or at least doesn't stop that now. Um, so I think, uh, I think, yeah, that's, that's how I take her silence there. Not necessarily a like, well, I don't care if my daughter gets locked up in a tree, um, kind of thing. But I think, but I do agree that that, that her silence is very conspicuous there. Um, Mike? <clears throat> the way I read this was that Thingol, in constructing this birdcage for Luthien, is basically, you know, he's putting forth all that remains of his power. I mean, he's the king of this forest, and so this is sort of one of his last cards to play, is to find the biggest tree in his magical forest to try to put her into this house. And we, as the reader, know that it's not going to work because we know that the the character of Luthien is involved in, in powers and is powerful in a way that transcends Thingol's forest. But Thingol either doesn't want to accept that or or chooses not to accept that or doesn't understand that yet. So he's playing one of his last cards, which is finding the ultimate tree and putting her into that to see if that might work. Yeah, yeah. And I and I love the symmetry there. Isn't that cool? Whereas at the same time that Baron is thrown into the dungeon 
at the bottom of a hill underneath a, you know, under a hill, under a tower. Uh, Luthien is being imprisoned at the top of a tree up in the sunlight, right? So she has this, this really high, open air, sunny, beautiful prison, and he has this completely dark, enclosed, claustrophobic, subterranean prison um, at the same time. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a lovely kind of, uh, kind of contrast there and then Luthien delicately leaves the one and then is going to proceed to blast the other into smithereens um well let's let's move on then to Luthien we talked a, a bit about the Rapunzel thing uh last time though I actually I would kind of sort of expand that a little bit not just thinking about um the links to Rapunzel which we already discussed somewhat although you could add something if you have some other thoughts um but thinking about um her hair in general. We get a couple references to her hair here. Uh, this is where she also makes a cloak, uh, a cloak of it. Any anyone have any general thoughts about about Luthien's hair? Was, was sort of uh, was. I mean, it's 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 interesting that that seems to be one of the primary. In addition to her singing, her singing and her dancing are very powerful. But her hair uh, also is uh, is 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 apparently um, apparently very powerful. I think. Uh... Her hair is very similar to uh, Ungoliant, um, the way she covers herself and kind of makes things happen. Yeah, no, that's a really neat connection. I'd never thought of that before. Uh, but yeah, yeah, the, the 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 strands of her hair being like the unlight of Ungoliant, the the, the cloaking shadow. Um, her Luthien moving across the terrain, cloaked in this shadow, is kind of like the sh- the shadow that Ungoliant remember cloaks both herself and uh, Melkor in as they're coming across uh, and coming to attack uh, to attack Valinor. And I mean, I think thinking you know we were looking at some of the image of shadow and twilight um, that we get back when Baron and Luthien first meet and how Luthien is associated with the shadows and with Twilight. Um, though, you know, and, and in that there's a kind of reclaiming them uh, as as beautiful and peaceful and lovely things rather than um, things of terror and horror that, that Morgoth makes them. Um, and so I, I, for that reason, I really kind of, uh, I, I, I find that, that parallel kind of, or that reversal kind of delightful that she's, uh, she's also kind of like the anti-Ungoliant. That's, uh, that's pretty neat. Um, let's see, Chris? Yeah, she's like a... Kind of oh, yeah, person. go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, she's kind of like the most beautiful thing ever, and uh, Ungoliant pretty much destroyed two of the most beautiful things that existed prior yeah. to her. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, how similar yet opposite. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's, I, I agree. I agree. I agree. Chris? Um, just had a quick quick thought as far as the the Luthien's power of hiding and things like that. It's almost an extension of Melian's power, uh, obviously on a smaller scale, but Melian hides um, and uh, cloaks Doriath right. on a much larger scale. Um, but uh, it's almost kind of like a similar theme of her power. Yeah, no, I, that's... That's true. I mean, it, it, as you say, a much smaller scale. Uh, but yeah, no, that's, and, and it's, it's not exactly, and, and of course I was going to say that also is like the hiding of Valinor as well. Um, right? You know, the, 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 the fencing of Doriath is like the fencing of Valinor on a smaller scale. And then Luthien is able to kind of fence herself around. Um, in uh, in an even smaller scale way, so yeah, that's that kind of puts her in good company and and is sort of it makes that part of an interesting uh, pattern. Yeah, no, that's 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 very cool. 
Okay, now uh, let's go to the meeting of Luthien with Kelegorm and Kuruvin. We have here, in a sense, something that is like a third instance now of a pattern that we've seen. We have Thingol wandering, well, before he's Thingol, right, back when he's still, uh, back when he's still Elwë. Uh, we have him wandering through the woods of Nan Elmoth, minding his own business, when all of a sudden, wham, he sees the glorious beauty of Melian and is completely smitten and is in this kind of magical stasis for hundreds or thousands of years or however long it is. Um, we have Baron stumbling, weary and almost dead, out of the mountains of terror, and he sees... Luthien suddenly dancing there in a glade, and wham! He also is sort of, uh, you know, chained by uh, this spell that he is cast under. Um, when uh, Kelgorm and Kurufin find Luthien on page 173, we have a similar thing, right? There they are, wandering in the woods, minding their own... Well, they're kind of minding their own business. They're hunting. They're not yet up to any horrible mischief. Um, and Huon finds her and brings her to Caligorm. This is the top of 173. And Luthien, learning that he was a prince of the Noldor and a foe of Morgoth, was glad, and she declared herself, casting aside her cloak. So great was her sudden beauty revealed beneath the sun that Caligorm became enamored of her. But he spoke her fair, and promised that she would find help in her need if she returned with him now to Nargothrond. By no sign did he reveal that he knew already of Baron and the quest of which she told, nor that it was a matter which touched him near. Thoughts here? I mean, I think that the the parallel, uh, you know, like some of these other kind of counter-parallels that we've been looking at here recently, uh, I, I think kind of ha- gives us some cues about how to respond uh, to our good friend Caligorm here. Um, Brandon, what do you think about this? I just think it's, it just shows the power of of beauty in Tolkien, and just that sort of uh, just the power to even command the soul, or the kind of just the hierarchy of like that is revealed by Luthien's beauty when she uncloaks herself. I think just that kind of aesthetic experience that Kelligorm must have had was just he was enamored with her. You know, it's just this indescribable moment of just of love, of just you know, recognizing beauty for what it is. And it's just interesting, just like how she has this amazing power, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I... I, And the thing that I think is really fascinating about that, I mean, again, uh, in a sort of mini-style time moment here, my my favorite word in that sentence, the so great was her sudden beauty sentence, my favorite word is the word but right after the semicolon. That is, I find that really fascinating. Because if you read just up to the semicolon, so great was her sudden beauty revealed beneath the sun that Kelligorm became enamored of her. That sounds like he's just, he's following along, you know, first Thingol, and then Baron, and now Kelligorm, and it sounds like, hey, that's the proper re- response, right? I mean, when you see Luthien, and, and just, I mean, you should she genuinely is the most beautiful creature, you know, the, the most beautiful of the children of Iluvatar ever, and whoever will be, so, of course he's enamored of her. In fact, that would seem to speak well of him, you know, that he's responding in this appropriate way. So it seems that sounds like a good thing. And then we have the next statement, he spoke her fair and promised she would find help. And that sounds good too. But they're joined with the word but, right? He became enamored of her, but he spoke her fair. 
So this suggests that his speaking nicely to her is in contradiction to his becoming enamored of her. So in Kelgorm, the in, the being enamored is not a good thing. It's a bad thing, <laughs> and he he doesn't mean anything good by it. Um, and that I think I, I I think we get we get the most a, really quite a subtle but a really powerful cue in understanding Kelgorm with that conjunction that we get there in the middle of the sentence. Um, so Brandon, do you want anything else? Yeah, no, it's just very, I mean, yeah, that's interesting how Caligorm just kind of takes it that way. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, no, good. And, uh, it's, uh, Mike, you wanted to jump in? I invoked style time, so I... No, that's fine. Style time is available to everyone. Please, everyone, <laughs> <laughs> exercise their style prerogative. <laughs> I, I said behind behind the word but is the fact that Caligorm, after he gets over the beauty of Luthien, Luthien is considers Luthien a means to a, another end. That's what for me is behind that that single word. Is that very quickly we get you know there's the flash of the beauty he's enamored, but and behind that word but is he's he, his larger goal is to recover the Silmarils and that's where his thinking goes. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and and I think here we can see that that but in that sentence shows us that Calgorm is not just following in Baron and Thingol's footsteps, but instead is anticipating the fourth time, or with Luthien, the third time someone is going to perceive her and become suddenly enamored of her. And of course, the third time is going to be Morgoth himself. Then Morgoth, looking upon her beauty, conceived in his thought an evil lust and a design more dark than any that had yet come into his heart since he fled from Valinor. Now, with that tantalizing comment, I don't want to talk about that now. We'll talk about that later. Um, but I think with Kelegorm, um here, that's what Kelegorm's becoming enamored is like. Um, it's a foreshadowing of that later, more dark and more horrifying moment. Um, Caligorm has more in common, it seems, with that than um, than um, than than with Baron. Um, <laughs> I saw several hands go up and then disappointedly disappear when I said that we weren't going to talk about that. Now, sorry, we'll get back to it. I promise. I promise we'll get back to it. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, Good. So I, I, yeah, and, and this, this I think is, is really important to see. I mean, we get very clearly what sketchy characters, uh, Kelligorm and Kurufin are. But, um, enough of that, uh, enough of that depressing topic. Let's move on to something good. I know several of you have been pining to talk about Huan, so we've finally gotten to Huan. Uh, so let's, uh, so let's talk about him. Dave, go for it. I have a I have a very straightforward question about uh, trivia. Uh, so they keep referring to Huan's death by the greatest wolf that ever lived as being predicted, and like apparently everybody knows about this <laughs> this prediction. Who the heck made this prediction? Who is it that stepped up and said, "Oh, by the way, uh, Huan, I just thought you might want to know, um, and I'm going to tell everybody here so everyone knows, uh, you're going to be killed by the greatest werewolf that ever lived." Just that I'd say. Uh, yeah, just like a random prophecy. You no, know, we're, we're never told who uttered it. It's just sort of, sort of a yeah. Uh, it's just, everyone knows it. Everyone refers to it. You have people like Sauron who are like, "Hey, I heard about that prophecy. Maybe I'll turn myself into a wolf and see if I can fulfill it." Everyone knows about this, but no one. We never see anyone make it. There's no reference to who made it. There's not even. It's sort of 
Oh, God. Here we go, Joe. I'm going to make a Harry Potter reference. It sort of <laughs> brings up the whole... It brings up the conversations around prophecies in Harry Potter where they say, do these things actually matter or do they only matter in the sense that people believe that they matter and then take steps to fulfill them? So a very Macbethian type thing. This is kind of a bizarre prophecy because we don't see anyone actually make it. And so we right. don't know whether there's any real power behind it other than people believing in it. Right. And even even Morgoth... Um, I mean, there, there, there are even hints that Karkaroth himself, who is going to be the fulfillment of the prophecy, was also created in order to bring about the fulfillment. Because Morgoth has heard of Huan too, and Morgoth also knows about this prophecy. Um, and so he's gone to the trouble to breed himself a huge, enormous wolf to guard his to guard his gate. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, now, does. I, certainly, the whole realm of prophecy uh, in Tolkien is very different than in Harry Potter. And the primary difference, of course, that I would point to is sort of if you think outside to the way... I, I mean, all you have to do is sort of like put Professor Trelawney against like Mandos, right? Um, that is to say, the way that the foreseeing of the future in general is described in Tolkien, um, and not and you don't even have to go as high as Mandos. You can go to Malbeth the Seer. You can go to the prophecies that Aragorn makes. You know, he Aragorn is dropping prophecies all over the place. Uh, in well, not all over the place, but on several occasions in the Lord of the Rings. You know, whether it's prophesying Gandalf's death or whether it's prophesying to Aemir that they will meet again with all the uh, hosts of of, of uh, Mordor lying between them. Um, Prophecy is generally very well regarded and understood to be effective um, in Tolkien's world, whereas in the Harry Potter world, um, divination is generally looked down upon. Um, it's you know, Dumbledore makes it pretty clear that he doesn't really believe in general that it has that you know it has a really low predictive value in general. Um, so so I, so for that reason, I think that the um, uh, the 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 way that these two things are talked about in those two worlds are therefore really, really completely different. But you are right. This is a conspicuous prophecy. And I think not only just because it's sourceless, because, I mean, you know, somebody made it over in Valinor, you know, whatever. There were lots of candidates for that job. It didn't have to be Mandos, though maybe it was like one of those random things that Mandos said at a party or something. I don't know. But um, but nevertheless, we... Um, you're right to say that it is kind of Macbethian, um, that this is a prophecy, that there's lots of attention drawn to the fact that that it is it, it, it has become, in a sense, a self-fulfilling prophecy by the way the bad guys are all trying to prevent it. Chris, go ahead. Well, this is kind of uh, maybe a little bit out there, but uh, it could be something that had been referenced in the song that maybe a, a, a number of the uh, Maiar and Valar knew about, and then it over time, it had filtered down through the through the Eldar as well. I mean, there's no there's no real support for that, but it's as good as any theory as any, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it, it it yeah. I mean, the the way in which remember that in Valinor, Huon was originally a hound of Orome, who was then a gift to Kelagorm, um, who used to who used to hunt with Orome. Um, so, yeah, I mean, probably it was one of the Valar or, you know, one of the Meyer. Who knows? I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really kind of hard to predict, but, um, 
Um, but yeah, I think that that's, uh, it is kind of tantalizing. And, and, as, and, and I do think that Dave is right to pick up on the fact that this prophecy gets a lot of emphasis, an unusual amount of emphasis. Um, and even there's, as I said, there's actually, there's more prophecy in the Lord of the Rings than there is in the Silmarillion. That's not a major, I mean, other things like the curse of Mandos and the doom of the Noldor, that's not exactly prophecy in the same sense. I mean, you know, slain ye shall be, I guess that's a prophecy, but um, that seems kind of a safe, we're, all, we're going to war with Morgoth, you know, slain ye shall be seems a pretty safe prediction. Um, but, uh, but not only, therefore, is it conspicuous because it is a, a an, an oft discussed prophecy, um, but in the way in which people are, it's it's being kind of um, its fulfillment is being continually engineered or attempting to be engineered anyway. Laura, yeah, I was just wondering, uh, in terms of the use of prophecy in Tolkien, is he? Do you think there's something significant about him? putting such emphasis on prophecy, or do you think it's kind of more literary technique of foreshadowing that he's using? Anyway, can you say the first part of that? I missed the beginning part of that again. Could, could you do that again? I already forgot what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Come back and play the recording. What was this? Dave, what did I say? Uh, oh, I remember. Uh, it, it's interesting how much emphasis Tolkien puts on prophecy. Yes, um, and I you heard the last part yeah. that I that I was just wondering how um, you know is it a literary technique is it a is he foreshadowing there or there is there something deeper? Um, well, the, in that yeah, I mean the way and again here I'm talking about Lord of the Rings primarily because as I said there's so much more prophecy specifically that goes on there than here. Um, in the Lord of the Rings, prophecy seems seems to come out, and here I'm thinking especially of Aragorn. It's sort of a reflection of his stature. Um, I, I think that Eomir's response to um, to Aragorn when they meet on uh, on the Pelennor field, and um, Aragorn recalls his prophecy and says, "Did I not say that you know?" We shall meet again, though all the hosts of Mordor lie between us. And Amir said, you did say that. He says, but I knew not then that you were a man foresighted. Um, I didn't realize that you were that kind of guy, you know, that, that you were the kind of person who just like said stuff and it happens. Um, that, and, you know, that say a thing that's going to happen in the future and it does happen. Um, it seems to be a reflection, even thinking, you know, thinking back to what we were talking about uh, Brandon with uh, um, with Finrod and Sauron again, you know, and the power of words and the relationship between uh, between words and events, you know, when they're said with power and especially sung with power. Um, there seems to be an element of that almost in prophecy that it's not just foreseeing. Um, it's not just like, hey, I was given a glimpse of what's going to happen in the future, and I'm kind of telling you that. They don't really know what they're what they're what they're saying. But uh, but again, you know, in this sense, making a prophecy come about, um, making a prophecy be fulfilled, is not necessarily. Um, doesn't undermine the prophecy in any way, doesn't call into question whether or not the prophecy is genuine. In a sense, that almost grants e even a greater stature to the person. It's, it means the prophecy was even more perfectly effective. Um, 
And here, of course, one of the other very conspicuous prophecies in the Lord of the Rings is the prophecy about no living man, the 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 maximally Macbethian prophecy uh, made in uh, in the Lord of the Rings, one that is that is almost a paraphrase of Macbeth, um, no living man uh, shall slay the Witch King, um, and that again, it's not quite self fulfilling. Um, it's not. The good guys are definitely not doing what the bad guys are doing here with Huon. That is, they're not saying, okay, we all know the prophecy that no living man is going to kill the Witch King, so let's, like, get out something that's going to, you know, get around this. Let's try to find a loophole in this prophecy uh, and make that prophecy come come into effect. They're not doing that. Um, in fact, almost the opposite. The 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 one who is not a living man, in fact, the two who are not a living man who both of them contribute to the Witch King's death, being Eowyn and Mary, um, were both of them explicitly forbidden to be at the battle in the first place. So the good guys kind of tried all they could to prevent the prophecy being fulfilled. Um, but uh, um, but anyway, yeah, so that's... that's uh, I mean, again, it, 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 I think then sort of places particular weight upon uh, the bad guys' orchestrations um, of this uh, of this prophecy in this version. Um, anyway, um, okay, so, uh, but more on, more on Huan in general. Again, I know that many of you were, were, uh, were, were just champing at the bit to talk about Huan. So I want to, want to make sure to give you your opportunity. What do you guys like about Huan most? What do you, uh, apart from the whole prophecy business, um, what is it that you think makes Huan a really compelling character? Joe? Um, well, uh, one thing I just—he's like one of the few really good, awesome guys who doesn't really stray off the path, and I guess that could come from him somehow being above a child of Iluvatar or whatever. But uh, and it's just really great. Yeah, he kind of chickens out for a second, um, which we get to later. But that's okay—he redeems himself. And uh, just it's strategy. I mean, it's strategy. It's tactics. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's, it's not cowardice. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the defense is already starting. But uh, you know, he's like <laughs> one of my favorite characters. Just, just I mean, just maybe it's just the man's best friend thing kind of going on. Just how he sticks to everything, and then once he realizes that Kelligorm is a turd, basically, I mean, he's like, all right, I'm not gonna be with you anymore. I'm gonna go stick with these other people. I mean, just um, his character in general, uh, you know, like his morals and everything else is just really great and refreshing to see someone actually succeed in that way. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, and and it, you're right. He's like the he's like the the Uber dog, right? I mean, he's like the ultimate dog. He's he's you know he's he's strong and he's faithful and he's um, he's extremely loyal. But he's not just loyal, blindly loyal to his master. He is faithful, and he goes back to Caligorm because going back to his master is the right thing, even though he knows that Caligorm doesn't really deserve it. But he's not just going to desert him. However, when push comes to shove and his master right in front of his eyes is gonna is is you know attempting to to steal Luthien and and uh you know and to murder Baron he is gonna have no more of it and he you know sticks to the higher principles and he remains faithful to the good guys um and and he is and you know as Matt just said in the text I, I agree he Huan is wise um the fact that he is and this is sort of where he really kind of transcends the the traditional dog role it's not just that he is you know like you know is does the dog thing perfectly well but far transcends it in becoming the counselor you know he is he is their wise counselor who can give them wisdom um uh and i th- i think that that's really um 
that 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 does really bring his character to a new level when Huan starts talking. Um, and, 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 and there, you know, Dave, there's another one. It was decreed that he, that he should speak three times with words, uh, before he died. Who decreed it? I mean, did, did Orame give him permission? You know, is Orame like, okay, little puppy, you can speak three times before you die. Choose wisely. Um, and interesting also, how long has Huan been alive? Hundreds of years, thousands of years, and he's ne- he hasn't used any of them. He's gotten three three speaking moments, right? You can get three speeches in your whole life, and he's still saved them all to this point. Um, that itself is really kind of cool, I think. Um, yeah, Dave, go ahead. Well, um, one thing that I think everybody likes about Huan is his uh, to put things in parochial terms, character. He's he's like has this sort of unswerving sense of right um you've already sort of discussed this a little bit um i one thing that i wondered about him is they say that he's really loyal and so when he's first introduced um when um uh caligorm and kurafin well i guess it's not when he's first introduced but when caligorm and kurafin are driven out of nargothron he goes with them even though he's already sort of gone against them a little bit and helped Luthien escape and everything. Uh, and they mentioned that he, you know, that he's already sort of having some strife and conflict with them, but he goes with them out of loyalty. And it's not until they're trying to ride down Baron that he finally turns on them. And so um, um, I sort of, that sort of brought two questions into my mind. Um, one, what, what was sort of the nature of his loyalty to Kelligorm and Kurfin? Is this one of those oath situations that he makes some, some sort of oath to, to obey them? Um, and then I think what's really interesting about him is that he um, he betrays his loyalty to them. He finally, at the end, just cannot tolerate their their wickedness any longer and um, uh, uh, abandons his service of them and turns on them. Um, and this is portrayed as sort of this isn't portrayed as a bad thing. You know, there's other parts of the book where betraying oaths, going back on oaths, um, um, you know being disloyal or portrayed as bad things, and here it's not. And so I wonder what this says about just oaths and loyalty in general in, in Tolkien. Like, there, there are obviously times when, you know what, to heck with an oath or to heck with what you've promised, you need to go and do what you feel is right. It kind of makes you think about, like, um, uh, sort of, well, I don't know, I guess the situation with Sam and Frodo toward the end of Lord of the Rings is not quite the same, but he, he sort of, at first he, he knows, like, okay, my duty is to take the ring and try to destroy it myself, and then he decides, nope, to heck with that, um, I need to, you know, like, I'm betraying what I think is right. So anyway, if you could speak to that, uh, or what are your thoughts on, on sort of the nature of Huan's loyalty to Calicorm and Kurafin, and what is it about, like, why is it okay for him to to sort of betray that loyalty to turn on them? And what does that say about the nature of loyalty? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think actually I would cite this as a positive counterexample to, to, to the swearing of oaths. I mean, last time we were talking about how, how dangerous, apparently, the swearing of oaths is and how frequently uh, in the Silmarillion, you know, somebody swears an oath and it ends up com- coming back to bite them. Um, with Huan, he is clearly not in the situation that Finrod has expressed himself in, in that speech that Finrod gives about his oath and, and they're all, you know, all of the conflicting oaths. And then he says, you know, and thus we are all ensnared. Huan is not ensnared. He's not trapped by his loyalty. Um, 
if he had just sworn an oath, I swear I shall follow Caligorm no matter what happens, then in this moment when they're, you know, uh, uh, trying, when, when he's trying to kidnap Luthien and, and, and kill Baron, Huan would be in the same position. He's like, oh, that's horrible. I want to do something, but I've sworn an oath and I can't. He's not in that position. He is free to say, okay, a line has been crossed here. I'm out. Okay, that you know, I have the freedom, I have the power just to turn around and say no. Because you're right, it's clear that he's not doing something transgressive there. This is not, and in that moment, Huan broke his oath, you know, decided for what seemed a good reason to break his oath. In that moment, Huan forsook his master. That is, I am leaving your service. Uh, you are like an unredeemable jerk, and I'm out. Um, now, what was the nature of his loyalty? Well, we don't know. All we know is about the origin, is something, some hints about the origin of Huan's relationship with Kelogorm. Namely, that it was Orome who gave Huan to Kelogorm. So, in a sense, um, Huan's loyalty to Kelogorm is a reflection of his respect for Orome. That is, Orome's will was that Huan follow the horse of Kelagorm, his master. And so he is. Um, but when this line is crossed, Huan clearly views himself as a moral free agent. Um, and we can see this both now, you know, most dramatically when he once and for all forsakes the service of Kelagorm, um, uh, basically saying, look, this is not what I signed on for. This is not, you know, I, 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 and, and I, w- I would think he would be pretty safe to think this is not what Orome would want him to do. Um, especially since, remember, Baron is also like, he's also kind of very Orome-like. Remember his relationship with all the wild beasts and his skill as a hunter? Um, but like Orome, he hunts only the the, the monsters of Morgoth. Um as, and 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 is you know sort of allies with all of, with with all of the other beasts anyway um so so uh, but but again even before the final forsaking of Kelogorm, Huan clearly perceives himself as a moral free agent which we can see by his choice to assist Luthien knowing Huan knows that he is undermining his master here he knows he is undermining Kelogorm, um who has in his sight, remember it was Huan who finds Luthien and brings her to Kelogorm, obviously with the intention to help her. And then he sees Kelogorm betray her and imprison her. He knows what Kelogorm did. He knows that it is his own master that he is not just contradicting, that he is that he is undermining, um, that he's acting against. And yet he doesn't yet forsake him. It's like he gives Kelogorm another chance um, to redeem himself. Uh, to turn back, I don't even know what. Um, but yet he clearly sees himself as enough of a free agent um, to make those choices, both in the interim while he's still there, and then ultimately to leave. And I think that's what shows us that he's not under an oath at all. And I think that it's pretty clear. Loyalty loyalty is a really good thing, but mere blind loyalty is not a good thing. That is, I'm just going to do whatever my master tells me to. Like, that's Huan, Huan is right to forsake Kelogorm in this moment. Um, and he, and I think that that's pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. Chris? I guess maybe we touched upon this a little bit last week, but it, 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 I'm wondering 
if Tolkien is not making some sort of statement about the danger of just absolute oaths where I'm going to do this no matter what happens, no matter what other extenuating circumstances. And I, I come to mind again about the, uh, the state of Europe prior to World War I when they had all the, all the countries in Europe had these interlocking alliances where basically oaths that if somebody attacks you, I'm going to attack them and et cetera, et cetera. That's how we end up with World War I in particular. Um, but uh, um, I think that's, he's over and over as we see these oaths that people get trapped in, whether uh, no, no matter what, they, they make an oath that's absolute. And so they get trapped and they can't get out of it. And I, it's a little bit different than, uh, I think you're right, we don't know exactly the relationship of uh, Juan's uh, or Huan's relationship to Kelegorn, but I, I think you're right. Maybe he's, uh, it's not in the nature of an oath, which maybe gives him some more flexibility, which allows him to do the right thing rather than having taken a, uh, 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 an, an oath like everybody else does. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that, that does seem to me to be pretty clear. Um, now, notice the first time, I, I feel like since uh, we're we're told sort of portentously that three times Huan is able to speak with words, uh, that we should um, we should pay attention uh, to uh, to those three times. Um, the first time he speaks, to whom does he speak the first time, and what does he say? Does anyone remember? Uh, I don't, but I'll answer and be ha- <laughs> and be perfectly fine being wrong. I think he speaks to Luthien first, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He this like, is offers a, her counsel about what she should do after he helps break her out and everything. Yeah, yeah. This is the bottom of 173. Uh, now, Huan devised a plan for the aid of Luthien, and coming at a time of night, he brought her cloak, and for the first time he spoke, giving her counsel. Then he led her by secret ways out of Nargothrond, and they fled north together. Um, so he doesn't just bust her out of prison. He also... Um, gives her counsel. He also devises the plan. Um, and the plan seems here to go well beyond, um, hey, uh, I figured out how to sneak you out of prison. This is not like Bilbo breaking the dwarves out of the Elven King's jail, where he, you know his plan only goes up to a certain point and doesn't even include a way to get himself uh, out. Um, Huon, Huon is thinking ahead, um, and he's clearly, you know, cause, you know, and then you can ride on me, and we, we'll go real fast, um, and we'll get up there, and then I will, you know, I'll take out the werewolves, because um, it's quite a, sort of convenient. This is, a, this, is, this is the perfect job for him, right? Sauron has gathered all these werewolves around him, and uh, you know, Huon's like, I can take care of the werewolves, um, and then um, I, I don't know if it was part of uh, of Huon's plan that Luthien was going to sing and blast the tower out, but um, but anyway, he has he has the plan, and I think it's interesting that we're not given the quotation from Huon. Uh, we're just told that he has spoken for the first time um, and giving counsel. Um, I think that that's uh, that's that's actually that's I, I find that I find that a little bit funny. Um, so let's go on to the confrontation between Luthien and Huon and Sauron. We've, you know, we started tonight with Finrod versus Sauron. What do you make of Huon versus Sauron and also Luthien versus Sauron? Any thoughts? Dave, go ahead. Come on, people, where are you? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I have a question. I, you know, it, it, for, 
for anyone reading through this their first time after maybe being very familiar with Lord of the Rings, maybe even being more familiar with the films, um, uh, and that's not me. I've read through this a bunch of times. But um, the first few times you read through this, it's sort of shocking to watch Sauron fighting these people like one-on-one, getting his hands dirty, and then getting his butt kicked by Luthien. Uh, and it kind of, you know, it's sort of like, wow, geez, this was like the big bad guy in Lord of the Rings that everybody's terrified of and refers to as the Dark Lord and the elves are running away and all that. And here he is, one-on-one with a, a chick and a dog, and he loses. I mean, that's pretty pitiful. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, that, that's sort of your first, you're like, huh, well, geez, what happened? But I, what I'm kind of wondering, just sort of, I think I probably know the answer to this, is uh, sort of power levels, and maybe it's inappropriate to speak of power in this way, but is it like, is is this an indication of just how sort of powerful and skillful Luthien is and Huan is? Um, is this an indication of, of how much elves sort of diminish uh, in the later ages, such that, that, that they, can't, they can't even directly contend with Sauron anymore? Does Sauron's power grow in the later ages when he sort of takes, you know, takes over for Morgoth as the Dark Lord? Um, does, does the scope of his power and his ability to affect um, Middle Earth and to battle the good guys sort of grow? Does he sort of essentially assume some of Morgoth's power? I, I particularly wonder about that since there's, you know, a lot of the stuff in in Morgoth's ring where, where um, and we've discussed this before, that Morgoth disperses his own power into Arda and into his evil servants when he corrupts them. And is it possible that Sauron, when he sort of takes over as the Dark Lord in Middle-earth, he, he, he in some ways is able to increase his, abil- his influence over Middle-earth um, by uh, sort of taking advantage of this evil infrastructure, as it were, that Morgoth has laid out. Right, so, right. Yeah, what's the deal? Why, why is it that Sauron, the crazy... Dark Lord of of the Lord of the Rings that every nobody can can go toe to toe with gets his butt kicked here by uh, one maiden and one albeit very cool dog. <laughs> I think some of both. Oh well, some of the latter, more of the former. Um, that is, it might be. I mean, the the you know the the way that you put it about him kind of tapping into some of Morgoth's power and stuff. I think that's conceivable. Certainly, he does be. I mean, he does become the head honcho of evil. Um, in the later ages, but I think more the the by far the dominant trajectory that we see of evil creatures and just of evil power is decline. Um, that they that they personally get lesser, and it's hard to imagine that Sauron is really defying that trend and that he's getting greater and greater. In fact, we will see him take a sort of a quantum step backwards when uh, when Numenor falls. And he's uh, and and he's caught up in that. So uh, you know, we're we're told that he's going to be affected negatively by that and restricted. So I don't think Sauron, as we know and love him in the Lord of the Rings, is like way way greater than Sauron as he is here now. More the story is what you said, the fading of the elves. And I think that if we take the three major confrontations with Sauron, direct confrontations with Sauron that we get. Um, I think that it is exactly illustrative of the fading of the elves. Um, incident number one, Luthien and Huon just absolutely whooping him um, here uh, at the at the entrance to his tower. Two, 
the la- the Battle of the Last Alliance, Gilgalad, Elendil, Elrond, Círdan, and Isildur fighting against Sauron and beating him. And this I've emphasized many times uh, in the podcast on various places, um, but that it's really important to remember that Sauron, although in the Lord of the Rings he seems like this, you know, not omnipotent, but hugely powerful, totally unassailable, uh, you know, a person whom they can only hope to undermine by destroying the ring and can't possibly oppose by direct arms, um, that we know, even within the context of the Lord of the Rings, we know that he was personally defeated, that he was thrown down on his face, Isildur steps on his neck, cuts his hand off his finger, his, cuts his, the ring, the finger off his, his hand by force and takes the ring from him. Um, with help. Isildur didn't do that by himself. So, Luthien is able to do it not easily. It's not like it was simple to do what she did, but it doesn't require war and whole armies, and it's just her and Huon, and they're able to defeat him um, really soundly. The the heroes of the Last Alliance, with great difficulty, do beat him again the second time. And then the third time, when we have, at the end of the Third Age, um, the war against Sauron, now they have you know they have faded to such an to such an extent that now they really just can't stand up to him um directly at all and this is why they're saying look it's not going to work and it doesn't really matter um we couldn't take him um all those references to you know gandalf says that sauron is still not not so powerful that he's above fear um that this is true we know that you know he does fear aragorn to some extent but remember what he fears about aragorn he's afraid that aragorn has the ring if aragorn had his ring and was using it against him that is using a bunch of his own power against him then it is possible that aragorn could possibly overthrow him just as goadriel uh implies quite clearly that if she took sauron's ring she could certainly overthrow him so he's not unassailable then but even then you that in itself that possibility for Sauron being overthrown a third time um, directly um, is itself evidence of the fading, that the only way the good guys could possibly directly overthrow him the third time um, is with his own power, is by using the power of his ring against him. So, um, so, so yes, I do think that this is definitely supposed to be a marker of how much lesser... Uh, the elves have gotten, and and men too. Men have been fading. Remember Faramir's speech about the Numenorians and how they and Gondor can no longer consider themselves high. Um, so so yeah, there's there's um, there is definite fading going on. Um, the 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 trajectory of evil is towards decline, but the trajectory of everything is towards decline for different reasons and in different ways. Um, but yeah, nobody is, and and even back then, almost nobody is as great as Luthien. Um, this is not just, uh, <clears throat> not only as we discussed, is it not just any dog that's opposing him? It's also not just any chick, Dave, as you say. Um, she is clearly one of the most powerful, and I think it's important to see the 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 superlatives that she is given. There are a couple of occasions on which we're told that a certain character is the something-est of all of the children of Iluvatar, um, right? And uh, just as we're told, for instance, that that Thingol is the tallest of all of the children of Iluvatar, I don't think we've been told that yet. We'll be told that a few chapters down the road. Nobody, nobody has ever been taller than Thingol. He's, he's, I don't know what he, how high 
he stands. Um, it's got to be really tall, actually, because um, the Numenorians were really tall. But anyway, um, so anyway, Thingol, really, really, really tall. Um, and this shows he is of really great stature. Um, Thingol is really is very, very powerful. He is a very mighty elf. Um, remember that Baron is just awed by his presence when he's brought before Thingol at first. Well, Luthien, her superlative, she is the most beautiful of all of the children of Iluvatar. And she's also one of the most powerful singers. She's not one of the mightiest minstrels, right? We're told that Dairon, um, her, the, her, you know, would-be lover who, who, um, turns her in two times. Um, by the way, in the first drafts in the Book of Lost Tales, Dairon is actually her brother at first, um, which is actually kind of interesting. And actually, I kind of like that better, or at least I like Dairon better when he's her brother um, than when he's this, like, jealous lover um, who begins to seem so petty um, with the way that he keeps turning her in. Um, but anyway, um, uh, but but her her singing is some of the most powerful singing of any of the elves that we see, and that's a big deal. I mean, that shows she is uh, she is really extremely powerful. Um, she is certainly the most powerful female elf that there ever was. But it's pretty clear that she that she stacks up against almost anybody. I think we're told pretty clearly that the greatest of all the children of Iluvatar, that is the most powerful, the one with the greatest stature, was Feanor. And this is why Manway is weeping for the uh, for the the corruption of Feanor um, as they're fleeing, you know, for the marring. Remember that word, the the marring of Feanor, just as Arda itself has been marred by uh, by Morgoth. Um, of all of the elves, Feanor had the greatest potential, but. Luthien, yeah, she's a contender. I mean, she, she certainly, if we're coming, finding a contender for for number two, yeah, she might be. Uh, Laura, go ahead. Is she is she technically an elf? I mean, her mother was a Maiar, so she's really half Maiar, half elf. So, yes. but is she considered to be an elf then? Yes, she does seem to be considered to be enough. I mean, and this is a good point. Like, it's not by an accident that she just happens to be um, so great. Um, and we get a couple reminders of this, you know, that is like that some power of divine race, uh, you know, that it's, you know, she she is invested with some of the power uh, of the Ainur. At least it comes over her at times or is revealed in her at times. Um, but yeah, and here I'm thinking especially of the end, which we're not talking about yet. Um, that is her fate, her choice, her destiny. Um Nobody ever even raises the question of like the fate of the Maiar. Um, she has the choice of either the elven destiny or the human destiny, um, and uh, that seems to be. Um, so yeah, I don't think I don't think that there's. Um, I don't I don't I don't I I think that there's there's um, there's definitely. Yeah, there, there's no option of her being of of her having the fate of the Maiar. Um, yeah, yeah. I want to look, let's see, um, and maybe we'll have to end with this today. We won't quite get to uh, our last, mercifully, uh, view of Kelgorm and Kurufin, um, in uh, 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 tonight. But, oh, wait, no, Dave, go ahead. I, I just want to apologize to all female listeners who might have been offended that I referred to Luthien as a chick. I would like to point out that I was using the term sarcastically. Right. <laughs> just thought I'd toss that up. 
And Dave, I wanted to I wanted to note that, that I didn't notice until you just brought attention to the fact that you called her a chick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> Maiden might also be offensive in some circles. Yeah, you know. True enough. True enough. I want to I want to end um basically sort of where we started um looking at songs going back and forth um this time not between Sauron and Finrod as we started with but between Baron and Luthien. Um page 175. Um I I want to start on 174. In that hour Luthien came, and standing upon the bridge that led to Sauron's isle, she sang a song that no walls of stone could hinder. Baron heard, and he thought that he dreamed, for the stars shone above him, and in the trees nightingales were singing. And in answer he sang a song of challenge that he had made in praise of the seven stars, the sickle of the Valar that Varda hung above the north, as a sign for the fall of Morgoth. Then all strength left him, and he fell down into darkness. But Luthien heard his answering voice, and she sang then a song of greater power. The wolves howled, and the isle trembled. Sauron stood in the high tower, wrapped in his black thought, but he smiled hearing her voice, for he knew that it was the daughter of Melian. The fame of the beauty of Luthien and the wonder of her song had long gone forth from Doriath, and he thought to make her captive and hand her over to the power of Morgoth, for his reward would be great. Um... So, so first, the back and forth of Luthien and Baron. Um, she sings a song like Finrod sang, a song of escape, a song of a, a song of release from bondage, um, and in her song almost makes it happen. That is, he thinks that he dreams. He has this vision, and in his vision, the stars shone above him, and in the trees, nightingales were singing. Um, and then he sings a song of challenge, a song of defiance. Now, his song doesn't have the same power of Luthien's. It's it's not able to make the reality happen. But then I love when then she sang a song of greater power and the isle trembles. That is, she begins to make into reality. Um, Baron, who is cons- who is entombed way underground in this prison, she is in fact going to open up that prison and open it up to the stars. Uh, to make reality what she first just sang in picture there, um, so I think that it's it's uh, the, the the power of her song, and I've pointed this out before. Um, it's one of my favorite. This is one of my favorite moments. Um, the 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 second time in the Silmarillion that we've gotten this sort of foreshadowing, this sort of typological foreshadowing um, to Frodo and Sam in, in, uh, uh, in the Tower of Kirith Ungol and the song that Sam sings uh, and his finding of Frodo when he's singing songs and he hear, and Frodo hears him and responds with songs and it's by Frodo's response to his song that he, that he hears him and, know, and, and is able to find him and release him from prison. Um, and of course we talked several weeks ago about Fingon finding Mithros in the same way when Mithroth is stable to the wall on Thangorodrim. Um, and, and I think that the way that this serves as a counterpiece, um, Luthien sings of freedom and the breaking of uh, the, 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 the snapping of chains and things. And when she sings it, it does happen. And she doesn't have that weakness that Finrod has in place of the tragic weakness of Finrod, um, that his only hope 
is the one thing that he can't lean on and the one thing that can undermine him, that is, those memories of Valinor. Where Luthien is standing is her love for Baron that has led her self-sacrificially to come and rescue him and save him. And and Sauron, who doesn't understand this at all. I mean, there's again that wonderful irony. He hears her song, and instead of thinking, holy crap, I'm doomed, he thinks, ah, sweet, this is excellent. Now I shall be able to capture Luthien. Um, and... Uh, uh, and then sort of the uh, the delightful irony of her just absolutely schooling him after that is uh, is fantastic. I love the phrase, um, Then Sauron yielded himself, and Luthien took the mastery of the isle and all that was there. Um, Luthien took the mastery of the isle. Um, you know, Sauron gives her the keys to the city. Um, well, I guess actually, I said we were going to end with uh, with this one last thing. We might as well we should we should probably end with with Finrod's tomb at least, um, and Finrod's death, um, Finrod's final self sacrificial death when he uh, when he's fighting the werewolf uh, and dies. And I love the 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 two references that we get, both sort of the the final statement of that paragraph, the top paragraph on 174, the little epitaph that we get for Finrod. Thus, King Finrod Felagund, fairest and most beloved of the house of Finway, redeemed his oath. But Baron mourned beside him in despair. And then um, the reference to his grave at the very bottom of 175, they buried the body of Felagund upon the hilltop of his own isle, and it was clean again, and the green grave of Finrod Finarfin's son, fairest of all the princes of the elves, remained inviolate until the land was changed and broken, and foundered under destroying seas. But Finrod walks with Finarfin his father beneath the trees in Eldamar. Now that itself is interesting, because you'll remember Finarfin is not dead. He's now the only one left of the sons of Finway. Um, you will recall that Finarfin turned back. He repented of the journey from Valinor, turned back, returned uh, to, to, to Tyrion, and was forgiven by Manway, and is still living back in Tyrion upon Tuna. So uh, the fact that Finrod is described as walking with um, Finarfin seems, I think, to point to the fact that he he seems to stay only a brief time. Either he stays a brief time in the halls of Mandos, or he, um, or this, you know, at this, this moment, at the end of that section, is sort of looking forward to the time when after his time in the halls of Mandos he's going to be. But again, one way or the other, the emphasis is not on his vanishing and going to the halls of waiting and, you know, Mandos, his reference to Feanor, you know, to me, Feanor shall come soon. Um, the reference is not to him going to Mandos, but to his return and ultimately a happy end to his story. Finrod's reunion with his dad, um, his return to Valinor, which he obviously is pining for, um, so the last thing that we get for Finrod is basically a happy ending and his tomb. And this is now the second significant tomb that we've had. We've had Fingolfin's tomb first. Remember, uh, uh, Thorondor takes his body and Turgon comes and buries it. And it's in the mountains up above Gondolin. And we're told that it remains inviolate and that no evil creature dares to go near it. And now this seems to be true of Finrod's as well, that it remains inviolate, that no evil creature goes there again. This island has been cleaned, both by Luthien's power, but also by Finrod's sacrifice, and by this memorial of Finrod's sacrifice. And then, um, 
and then in the end um we have this you know i remember this island before it became the island of the werewolves um was originally Minas Tirith the tower of guard finrod built this tower here in this spot in order to protect the vale of syrian in order to protect the pass of syrian and to watch over it and now his tomb becomes this permanent and far more effective, as it turns out, um, sort of bastion of guard here um, in the Vale of Syrian. Um, and so that's sort of, uh, you know, you can sort of tell how cool Finrod is, is that he gets these two uh, positive memorials. That is, that he personally, that his spirit receives a happy ending uh, over in Valinor, and that uh, that even that his death is fruitful. Um, it actually accomplishes something there is some there is some uh at least limited good that is done by uh by his death okay any 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 final thoughts here as i, I don't think we can have time to go to kelgorm and kurafin again um we'll start with kelgorm and kurafin and with baron and luthien's uh decision in baron's song we'll do that and then angband and then uh the end of the story next time um final thoughts here on this section all right. Thanks, everybody. We shall finish Baron and Luthien next time. Thanks again for listening. And on behalf of the Silmarillion Seminar, I'm Brandon Young. Catch our discussions every other Thursday at 10 p.m. at MiddleEarthRadio.net. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.